at the uh, rehearsal dinner for our daughter and her husband, Grant, uh, our son-in-law, one of his uncles told me a great joke. Came up, I was talking to all their family, and he came up, and he said, Wayne, what's the difference between outlaws and in-laws? And I said, I don't know. What is the difference between outlaws and in-laws? And he said, outlaws are wanted. <clears throat> of course, he was kidding. They made us feel very, very loved. Uh, in-laws are wanted. There are good traits in every family, even yours. Uh, let's do this. Tell me one trait of someone in uh, your parents' generation that you want to imitate. In fact, let's do this. Let's expand it. Anyone in your forefathers. So go back as many generations as you can. What is some trait in your background, your family background, that's a positive trait you wish you could see emulated in your own life? You'd like to emulate. Raise your hand. Don't tell me the person, just the trait. Yes, what is it? Work ethic. Excellent. How about over here? Yeah. Faithfulness. Brilliant. Beautiful. How about over Yes. Generosity. Beautifully said. There, there are almost always some character aspects of or good choices made by those who have gone before you. And the wise person sees those and wants to imitate those. Now, of course, there is also the flip side. There are certain character traits in your family background that you desperately want to avoid. Tell me some of those, at least the ones you can in public. Um, and again, not, not any names, just some trait you want to avoid. Yes. You got it? Go ahead. You're up. Okay, that's fine. Yes, let me hear one. Yeah, over there. Anger. Anger. Yeah, want to avoid that one. What else? You got one? Let me hear it in the middle. I'm going to call on you. I know you. Yes. What is it? Selfishness. Selfishness. How about over here? Let me have one from this section over here. Yes, at the back. Drinking. Drinking. Very good. Yeah, these are things we, these are things we want to avoid. We don't want to see these. Now, would you believe if I told you that God has a strategy for us he has a strategy for us whereby we can keep the good and throw out the bad of all that we've inherited from those who've gone before us. He has such a strategy. God has given us a means for imitating the good and avoiding the bad that we inherit. It's true. You know what the strategy is called? History. It's called history. As we put it in your notes, open your bulletin. You got when you came in on the left-hand side, you'll see this headline, God's strategy for keeping the good and throwing out the bad is the study of history. How many of us disliked history in school? Raise your hands really high. Hated history in school. Okay, lots of hands. That's because you remember Coach Boring, right? <laughs> he, <clears throat> he only wanted you to memorize dates that seeming to have no connection with each other endless films, or if you're old enough, film strips, uh, that seem to have no connection to your present world at all. Do you remember that? It was awful, wasn't it? And yet, watch this. In every group of any size, you're going to meet people who fit this category. Let me describe it to you. Let me, let me see the hands of those who are in this category. You hated history in school, but later... You found yourself drawn to it. You found yourself reading historical novels, enjoying reading history, watching history programs. Raise your hand if that is you. Look around. Keep them up really high. Isn't that fascinating? What happened? What a remarkable change. Usually, two things have happened for every one of those people who raised their hands. There are two things that are necessary for a person to begin to appreciate history, much less learn from it. Number one, we must develop some kind of basic grid. We have to have some kind of structure upon which we can hang these seemingly disparate events so that we can understand their relationship to each other. For example, without a basic timeline to understand, how do you fit together uh, these great walls in human history? The Great Wall of China, the Berlin Wall, the Long Walls of Athens, Wall Street, and the, uh, the massive walls of the Incas. 
They do, they do all have things to say to each other about civilization, but how can you understand without a, without a basic grid, without a timeline, those things jumble together like, uh, like clothes on the floor of your teenager's closet. Um, they've got to be hung up so that, so that you can find what you need when you need it and understand its relation to each other. Speaking of need, we also need to look, second thing, we need to look for connections or parallels between our situations right now in the present life and the challenges that were faced by those people in the past. That's the second thing that's required in order to learn from history. For example, you can better understand the military work that is necessary to fight terrorism today if you can see the efforts that were involved in rooting the Barbary pirates out of Tripoli 200 years ago. They are remarkably parallel. There is a great deal that helps us live today effectively if we understand why our forefathers were effective back then. When someone tells you they're enjoying history, they've had these two things happen, okay? They have worked to get a basic grid, and they have started seeing connections. Over the next few weeks, that is exactly what is going to happen to you and to me in this room. We're going to build a grid for understanding the history of a kingdom called Judah. And then we're going to learn from that history how to reform our own lives and our own times. Wouldn't you like to use God's strategy? If you would, you've got to get over your fear of history. I just ask you to trust me. Come on, I hardly ever bite. Let's start with the connections idea. What are the biggest challenges of our time? Here are a few ideas I gathered from a very informal poll uh, from some people who happen to have the misfortune of being in my office while I was working on this. So I asked them, <laughs> what are the biggest challenges of our time? And these four people gave me these four answers, which I think are actually pretty solid. Moral decay, rampant spirituality that does nothing to hide a profound lack of spiritual health, terrorism, and self-centeredness and entitlement. Seem pretty good to me. Those are four huge challenges. Okay, where in history can we go to learn what to do, and just as importantly, what not to do, when we live in light of those challenges? Guess where we can go? Judah. The ancient realm of Judah has so much to say about those particular challenges. There is so much there that is pertinent to our day. Americans, all of you who are Americans, you live in a time of national division and crisis. For Judah... They had the same thing over and over again, actually. And from them, we learn about these seasons. We learn the only solutions for those eras, the only thing that makes a difference is God and His Word. By sitting at the feet of Judah's kings, we can learn from their handling and their mishandling of the battles against the exact same forces that oppose us today. But wait a minute. Before we start to learn from Judah, we need to emulate, uh, before we get to emulate her victories and her tragedies be avoided, we got to master lesson number one. Many of you are regular churchgoers, all right? A lot of us are. And yet, we don't have a basic grid. We don't have a real basic understanding of the history of Judah. And without that, we're like clothes. All of it, the information just becomes clothes on the floor of the closet. We get lost. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, I'm going to give you a crash course in the history of Judah. This is going to help us hold on to the lessons God has for us. Look in your bulletin. Look in your notes. There you see a map of the Old Testament world. You see that? This map was drawn by my old colleague, Bill Bradley. It is the best simple tool I've ever found for helping people grab a basic grid on where all the Old Testament events occurred. I want you to grab a pencil or a pen because I'm going to walk you through this so we can go through it together. Um, if you don't have a pen, quickly run out to the info booth. They've got 6,000 out there. They'll be glad to give you one. There you go. Bring back a few more for other people. Don't throw them at them. You'll poke your eye out, kid. Um, 
Or the lady, the lady next to you, yes, you got the reference. The lady next to you probably has four in the bottom of her purse, uh, so you can ask her. So get a pen or pencil, and let's start. After the flood, faith history begins with a man named Abram. Okay, we're going to pick him up in this town, Ur, right here. One of the most delightful words to say in all the Bible. One, two, three, say Ur. One, two, three, Ur, Ur. Ur is right here. Uh, it is actually further from the Persian Gulf now than it used to be because of silt. And, uh, and he started here. Abram is called by God. Uh, his name later is changed to Abraham. He's called by God to go leave his very nice place in Ur that had running water and sewage and go all the way north up to a place called Haran. So draw a line along the Fertile Crescent somehow up here to Haran, which was in an area back then known as Padan Aram. From there, Abram follows God's call and he goes down through Syria and through Hatzor into this land called Canaan where God promises that his descendants will settle forever. So go to Canaan. So you start at Ur, up to Haran, draw your line down to Canaan. His descendants, Abram's descendants, went to live in Egypt. Uh, Abraham went to Egypt twice, but he never lived there permanently. His descendants did. In fact, they became slaves in Egypt. So draw the line down into Egypt and stop there. All right, you got that? Those poor Hebrews became slaves because there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and they miraculously were brought out in something called the Exodus. So draw them coming out of Egypt and going across. We don't know where they crossed, but somewhere show them crossing the Red Sea. I put two possible Mount Sinai's on your map. Uh, this is a traditional one. I actually think Sinai is much more likely on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Wherever it is, just draw a line going to Mount Sinai. After Sinai, Israel went with Moses up to this place, Kadesh Barnea. See that? So draw your line going up to Kadesh Barnea, whichever Sinai, go up to Kadesh Barnea. That's where God told them to go in and take the land that he had promised Abram that he would give them. But that's where the people listened to the ten spies who said there's giants in the land, and they stood together and they locked their arms and they sang, heck, no, we won't go. And they refused to go in. So God, <clears throat> okay, that's maybe a little exaggeration, but... But God then made them wander in the wilderness. So draw a line down and around. We don't know. We, we know a number of the places they went. We don't know the exact route. So just draw the line down here in the southeast, the, the Moabite area. Draw a line down here and leave it there. Okay? That's the next part of history. Next, Moses and Joshua led them east of the Jordan River, and they conquered the area that for, for millennia was called Transjordan. It's only in the last few years it's been called the Kingdom of Jordan. So draw a line straight up. And that is where Moses led this amazing conquest. He is an underrated general. He was a brilliant general. Uh, and they conquered this area. Then Moses died, and Joshua draw a line across the Jordan River because Joshua led them across the Jordan River to settle into Canaan. For the next many hundred years, the children of Israel lived in Canaan. They developed a kingdom. Eventually, that kingdom split in two. Still in this area, but the kingdom split in two. The northern half kept the name of Israel. The southern half became known by its dominant tribe and was called Judah. What's the northern kingdom called? Israel. The southern kingdom called? Judah. Very good. All right. I'm going to use a tighter map here so you can see what happened to them. The northern kingdom, Israel, was captured, and they were taken away by a very massive country called Assyria. They were taken away. They never returned. They totally assimilated into Assyrian life. They were completely non-God anyway. 
Uh, no, they did not become the American Indian tribes. No, they did not wander anywhere else. They became assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. They never returned. No, they never returned. So the southern kingdom of Judah, they got taken away as well sometime later by a, another big uh, empire called Babylon, but they came back after 70 years. Here's how it looks on your larger scale map. The northern kingdom goes to Assyria. Israel goes to Assyria. The southern kingdom goes to Babylon. And by the way, I just lazily drew it across here because it got confusing. They would never have gone across the Arabian Desert that way. Only in movies do people do that. You die. It's ridiculous. So they would have gone up and around like this and then back. Actually, there were three deportations to Babylon and three returns, but we'll talk about that some other time. You got the big idea, right? Okay, we want to learn from the character of Judah. Amazing parallels to our time. We need to learn from them, but we need our basic grid. Okay, that's a map. That will help us. Now, let's look at the Old Testament timeline that you see in your notes. Look at the timeline. It's also designed by my friend Bill. Eight basic periods in Old Testament history. Just eight. It's very simple. You get these eight, and you've got your grid. This is really easy, all right? The first time period is called beginnings. Only the beginning, right here, the beginnings. So on the number one, you see that, the first time period, write the word beginnings. This is Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Hey, guys, Genesis 1 through 11 answers nearly every why question that any human being has ever thought of in history. It's amazing. Those 11 power-packed, heavily crafted chapters tell you the answer to nearly every why question of which you can even imagine. Uh, it, it's remarkable. There's five parts to the beginnings period. The first is the creation. The second is the Garden of Eden, when there's creature perfection. Third is the fall of mankind, sin entering into things. Fourth is the flood, the flood of Noah. And fifth is the Tower of Babel. So just write those five things down, and you've got the, the beginnings period. Creation, Eden, fall, flood, Babel. All right? That's the first period. Second time period is the patriarchs. So write patriarchs right there. Uh, the guy who began this is the fellow we've already talked about, Abraham, Abram, later named Abraham. So when you see the little one dot there, write Abraham there because he's the great leader of this time period. Abraham lived around 2000 B.C. This isn't hard. It's pretty easy to keep it all straight in your mind. Abraham, about 2000 B.C., all right? David, as we're going to see, about 1000 B.C. Jesus, about zero A.D. B.C. It's, it's really not hard, okay? So Abram right here. He and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, later renamed Israel, they, as I said earlier, went down to Egypt. So we drew the line going down because they went down into Egypt where they settled around 1850 B.C. So you can put that in your next box. That's the period of the patriarchs, which is the, the rest of the book of Genesis. <clears throat> um, third cycle, third period, Exodus started around 1450 B.C. The line right here gets kind of squiggly. You know why? Because there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and the Egyptians enslaved Israel. So they were here at first living very happily, and then it became squiggly line slavery. That's the period of the Exodus. Who's the great leader that led them out in the Exodus? What's his name? Yeah, you can't say it like that. Yeah, Moses is so awesome. You have to say Moses like that. So try it again. One, two, three. Moses. Very good. Okay, very good. Now, anybody want to take a stab? What do you think this mountain is here? What is that? Sinai. That's Sinai, yeah. How about these tablets? What do they represent? Ten Commandments, Commandments which is a symbol for the summary of the whole law of Moses. And then what's this funny building with, the, with this tent with this uh, cloud over the top of it? What is that? 
That's the tabernacle. So those are the main issues, the main symbols of the Exodus. Fourth time period is the conquest. <laughs> Joshua is the leader now, and Israel's offspring move in and begin to, oh, by the way, the line goes squiggly here because what do they do? Wander in the wilderness, and then they go in for the conquest. Joshua is the leader about 1400 B.C. They go in and begin the process of conquering Canaan. The fifth time period of Old Testament history is covered for us in the books of, of Judges and Ruth and Samuel, and that is the period of the Judges. Here's what happened in the Judges. The people went through these periods, these cycles of horrible sin, turned their back on God, horrible sin. That caused them to, of course, face very painful things because God loved them enough to oppress them, to get their attention. They cried out to God. God, as He had promised, gave them pain. Then He had compassion, sent a judge who began to judge Israel and lead them back into a healthy relationship and a healthy life. There were actually seven of those cycles in the period of the judges, but I couldn't fit seven in here, so you've got four. Um, and that goes up to this guy, the king after God's own heart. His name is what, everybody? David. And as I told you, he lives around 1000 B.C. So put 1000 B.C. in your box there. That is the period of the Judges, which ends with Saul and then David. Kingdom is our sixth period. Notice the line splits, okay? After David's son, Solomon, the line for the kingdom period splits. The northern kingdom is called what, everyone? Southern kingdom is called? Nice. Very good. The northern kingdom has little asterisks here because they went away. They never returned. No, they never returned. That's right. They're gone. The southern kingdom of Judah came down, and we'll talk about what happened to them in a moment. The leaders during all this and the next two periods are a group of people, our last great leaders, and they're the prophets. So write them on that line of your leadership line. The seventh period is that southern kingdom of Judah where they entered the exile. It's called the exile. The Jews were in Babylon in exile for 70 years, just as Jeremiah had predicted. They were in exile roughly uh, from 600 B.C. to 530 B.C. That's the exile. And then our last time period is the restoration, the eighth period of Old Testament history where they are restored back to the land, and that ends in 400 B.C. with the, the publishing of our very last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Okay? So that is the southern kingdom of Judah. All right. You got it? It's pretty simple, right? Beginnings, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, restoration. All right, now we've got our basic grid. We know to look for parallels between those time and ours. Let's get started, and let's see what word God has for us today tucked into this ancient history. Turn to the other side of our notes, and you'll see the name of one of those kings of Judah. This is one of the kings of Judah. His name was Jotham. I wanted to pick two kings of the southern kingdom to get us started. You'll see why. I pick these two as we go along. Please open your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles, amazingly, right after 1 Chronicles, chapter 26. And while you find it, let me give you some context, okay? Jotham, the king we're going to talk about, his father was a guy named Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He did lots of wonderful works, particularly brilliant in science and math. Uh, he strengthened a pretty torn-up economy and military, but he had one problem, big problem. And it's actually one Isaiah inherited from his father. Isaiah got proud and foolish, very proud of himself, once he had made his kingdom safer and stronger. Now let's read about it. 2 Chronicles 26, start in verse 14. Isaiah provided the entire army with shields, spears, helmets, armor, bows, and sling stones. He made skillfully designed devices in Jerusalem to shoot arrows and catapult large stones for use on the towers and on the corners. Folks, this is, this is hundreds of years before Archimedes. 
Okay? This is amazing. This guy and his scientists are just remarkable, it tells you. Uh, so his fame spread even to distant places, for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. But, verse 16, when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithfully against the Lord his God by going into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the incense altar. Azariah the priest, along with 80 brave priests of the Lord, went in after him. They took their stand against King Uzziah and said, Uzziah! You have no right to offer incense to the Lord. Only the consecrated priests, the descendants of Aaron, have the right to offer incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you've acted unfaithfully. You will not receive honor from the Lord God. Isaiah, with a fire pan in his hand to offer incense, was enraged. But when he became enraged with the priests, in the presence of the priests in the Lord's temple, beside the altar of incense, a skin disease broke out on his forehead. Then Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests turned to him. And so, By the way, I love that it says turned to him. Because if you just, just picture the scene, they had to turn back and look at him. Why? Because the guy is mad and he's got fire in his hand, right? So they're like, ah, they've turned away because the guy's got fire. I'll burn you. And, and so they, they turn back and what do they see? They turned, <clears throat> they, turned rushed, uh, they turned to him and saw that he was diseased on his forehead. They rushed him out of there. He himself also hurried to get out because the Lord had afflicted him. So King Uzziah was diseased to the time of his death. He lived in quarantine with a serious skin disease and was excluded from access to the Lord's temple while his son Jotham was over the king's household governing the people of the land. Let me give you a little further background. We don't have time to read it, but Isaiah's dad did the same kind of nonsense. King, King Amaziah, that was Isaiah's dad's name, he fell into a cocky state where he also ignored God's word. He became his own high priest over a bunch of idols that he had captured and set up. God killed him for it. Then his son Uzziah does the same thing, trying to play God himself, taking the priest's job over. He gets smitten with leprosy. By the way, many of God's people end up like Uzziah and like his father Amaziah. It's something Kyle Eidelman exposes really well in his book, Not a Fan, discussing how Christians want to be fans of Jesus but not really follow him. Uh, Pastor Kyle says this, one way fans try to follow Jesus without denying themselves is by compartmentalizing the areas of their lives they don't want him to have access to. They try to negotiate the terms of the deal. I'll follow Jesus, but I'm not going to sell my possessions. Don't ask me to forgive the people who've hurt me. They don't deserve that. Don't ask me to save sex for marriage. I can't help my desires. Don't ask me to give a percentage of my money. I worked hard for that cash. And instead of following Jesus with their financial life, they follow Money Magazine. In their relationships, instead of Jesus, they follow Oprah. In their sex lives, instead of Jesus, they follow Cosmo. From Kyle Eidelman's book, Not a Fan. Amaziah and Isaiah are like that. They, they, they kind of partially, not completely follow Yahweh. They're, they're merely fans. And that is how most Christians follow Jesus. Let's be honest. It's how we follow Jesus. Kind of, not fully. And our kids are raised in that kind of leprous, idolatrous, ridiculous excuse for spirituality. Speaking of which, what do you think Jotham's going to be like? I mean, wouldn't you bet the farm that Jotham's going to be the same, right? Wouldn't, I mean, he's going to start out as a good king, a fair follower of Jesus, a, a kind of fan of Yahweh. But once he gets strong, what do you think, what do you think he's going to do? Sure, he is, he is almost certainly going to do the same sins of his father's, right? Let's see how it turned out. 
Look up here. Uh, parallel uh, summary account of Jotham's life. This is from 2 Kings 15. 2 Kings 15. He, Jotham, was 25 years old when he became king, reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, daughter of Zadok. Yerusha is a, a nickname, by the way, so her name was something else, but there's a nickname for it, of Zadok. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Uzziah had done. Look at that. There's the what and why of Jotham's life right there. What was Jotham like? I put in your notes 2 Kings, very tidy phrase. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Chronicles tells us even more. Uh, turn one page in your Bible over to 2 Chronicles 27. You're, you're in 26 right now. Go one page to the east of chapter 27. Let's read verses 3 through 6. Jotham built the upper gate of the Lord's temple, and he built extensively on the wall of Ophel. He also built cities in the hill country of Judah and fortresses and towers in the forest. He waged war against the king of the Ammonites. He overpowered the Ammonites, and that year they gave him 7,500 pounds of silver, 50,000 bushels of wheat, and 50,000 bushels of barley. They paid him the same in the second and third years. So Jotham strengthened himself because, get this, he did not waver in obeying the Lord his God. Jotham became mighty because he did not waver in following God. The Hebrew here is so cool, so cool. Look, they developed a word, uh, kafafun is the word, that means to build in an orderly fashion so the structure will last. Uh, my Bible translates that, he did not waver in obeying the Lord. Other translations bring it into English as he ordered his way before the Lord. A few render kafafun as, uh, as he was right and mighty before the Lord. That is not a bad epitaph to have on your tombstone, is it? He did right and was mighty. He did not waver. His life structure held because he ordered his ways before the Lord. Recently, two little kids were in my home. And they got these old blocks out uh, from my kids' childhood from the closet, and they started building houses. And the contrast between these two kids was fascinating. One little kid came to this, and she just grabbed whatever ones she had that came out, and she tried to put them on each other, and it, it was hilarious and hopeless and cute and precious and funny. I mean, there was just no, there was no structure to it at all. The other little kid was totally different. She sat down, and she got all the blocks together, and she picked the biggest, solidest ones and put those down first. And then she carefully put the shapes on top of it. She built her structure to last. Fascinating. That, that is exactly what the Hebrew is trying to tell us. We must build our lives. We've got to build our homes in an orderly way before the Lord. Build them to last. I know that some of us have experienced awful collapses. Okay, please don't despair. Whatever's happened in the past, just start now. Okay, right now, today, start building your life on God's Word. Follow Him fully from now on. Follow his plans fully from now on. And by the way, don't expect it to come together really quickly. It takes time and effort. We can't just have some emotional experience and expect that to suddenly build us a great life. We, ha we have to practice discipline. We have to order our lives as Jotham did. Why was Jotham, Jotham such a good guy that history remembers him so positively? The reason is he ordered his ways before the Lord. And Jotham learned from history. Look back again at the 2 Kings passage, uh, 1534. Jotham did the, the good, and it implies here only the good his father Uzziah had done. What about, what about his father's sin, his grandfather's sin, same sin in this family all these years? Was Jotham able to keep the good of his predecessors and not join in their sin? Yes, 
he did. Look at the verses we skipped over. Go back up, 2 Chronicles 27, read verses 1 and 2. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the Lord's sight as his father Isaiah had done. In addition, get this, he didn't enter the Lord's sanctuary, but the people still behaved corruptly. Jotham imitated his dad. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. He didn't follow the sins of his fathers. This king was a cycle breaker, and you can be too. Just like Jotham, you can learn from the good and throw out the bad of those who have gone before you. But you've got to listen. You have to order your way and learn from the past. Zedekiah, second king we want to look at today, he did not listen. Zedekiah was the very last king of Judah. His original name was Mataniah, but the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he changed the name. This last king was the son of Josiah. Get this. Zedekiah was the son of Josiah, who is, without a doubt, the best king to ever walk this earth until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Josiah was the best king ever to live. But Zedekiah was not a good king himself. He's a lot like you and me. He lived in confusing and difficult times that badly needed reform. You know what Zedekiah was like? Like most of us, you'll see this when you study him. He, he actually wanted to do good, but he refused to learn the lessons of history, and thus he became a fool. That's why his name was changed. Mataniah, his given name that his family gave him, it means gift of Yahweh. But Zedekiah, how he's always been known to history, means Yahweh is righteous. Get that. Instead of being a gift, Zedekiah became a negative reminder that God, unlike this king, is righteous. And it is horribly ironic that a Gentile king named him that. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon renamed him Zedekiah, proving that even people outside of the covenant community could see that Zedekiah was no gift. He was God's gift to no one, right? What was the cause of all this? Zedekiah refused to listen especially to history and Scripture. Turn it forward in your ways to the very last chapter of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36. You're in 27 right now. Go to the east to chapter 36, and let's read verses 11 through 13 about Zedekiah. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet at the Lord's command. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. He became obstinate, hardened his heart against returning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. There's the root of the problem. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. Zedekiah was not humble before the word of God. And because this king wouldn't listen, he didn't learn. Because he didn't learn, he just repeated the mistakes that came down to him from before him. Earlier in history, uh, Zedekiah had a nephew who was king before him. And that nephew tried to break an allegiance that he had with Pharaoh Necho, who was the, the king of Egypt. And it cost that nephew his life. Now, here's Zedekiah doing the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And, and in his self-centered pride, Zedekiah disobeys Jeremiah. He rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar. And notice the connection. Those who won't learn from the character lessons of history will repeat them. Philosopher George Santayana was wrong about very many things. I don't recommend his philosophy at all. However, he was spot on in his most remembered statement. His most remembered statement was, the one who does not remember history is bound to live through it again. And brilliantly, they put a copy of that statement on the wall at Auschwitz the death camp in Poland. 
We're going to learn a little more about Zedekiah in the parallel passage, 2 Kings 24. Look up here, 2 Kings 24, 17. Then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah from Libna. Zedekiah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. What's Zedekiah's legacy? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He acted according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Now, Jehoiakim was another one of Zedekiah's evil nephews. He was also king before him. Zedekiah took the mess that he inherited, and he just made no changes. He just continued in the rut that was before him. Real quick specifics. What did Zedekiah do that imitated Jehoiakim? Oh, let me just give you a few. He burned the word of God. He ignored the prophet Jeremiah. He severely taxed the people just to maintain his own splendor at court. He swore allegiance to a powerful king and then tried to break faith with that empire later. In a word, he was a fool. What happened as a result? The next chapter describes it. Look, very next chapter of 2 Kings 25. And on the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. There was no food for the people. That's a major problem. And by the way, in the Old Testament, when you see this, when they're called the people of the land, that's tipping you off to something that is more than just famine. You see, Moses' law made it clear that when a king and the people turn away from Yahweh, when they ignore God's word, God will love them enough by giving them hunger. He will get their attention. Deuteronomy promises this through hunger. Rather than abandon his people as they deserve, God promises to use pain as a tool in their growth. By the way, that's one reason he calls himself father, because that's what good parents do. They use pain to get the attention of rebellious kids. When the leader's a fool, the people suffer. And I mean suffer. People starved and died. Now, you and I are the leaders of families and businesses, and and civic boards, and ministries. Listen very carefully. There are people in our care who are suffering because we don't listen to God's Word and learn from it. That is a horrible consequence. And it gets even more graphic. Nebuchadnezzar finally recaptured the city. Look what happens. Zedekiah tried to abandon his people. He left them in their starvation, and he took off, but, but he got caught. Uh, The Babylonians caught him, and here's what happens. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 52. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamat, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon. How's that for continuing family pain? They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters. They slaughtered his sons before him and put out his eyes. So as a result, Zedekiah's foolishness is is incredibly ugly. And when you read this, you have to notice that it is also incredibly similar to what we see all the time in every age, right? The children of idiots get harmed as the parents just deepen in their blindness. Zedekiah is not only a true story, folks. This is also a very powerful object lesson for anybody who still has eyes to see and ears to hear. You build poorly, 
You continue the sins that you've inherited and your blindness will just overtake you and your family will be harmed. So let's each examine our own story in the light of these stories, these two kings. Let's talk about my story. Jotham did right in the sight of the Lord. Zedekiah did evil in the sight of God. And there we have it. One man learned from the past and from God's word. He broke the negative cycles he inherited. He kept all the good that came to him. The other king refused to learn and he stayed in an evil rut. What will my own story be? Will it, will it be a sad story like Zed? Or will my life history be a beautiful picture of his story? Will, will my life canvas be waterlogged and stained? Or will it show the touch of the master's hand? Those are your only choices. You cannot sit on the fence. Listen, Zedekiah is the perfect example. When you study him, what you find is a man who actually meant well, but he didn't learn the lessons of history. This guy had the best dad in all of Judean history. He had the wonderful prophet Jeremiah right at his elbow wanting to guide him, but he didn't listen. All the great background in the world doesn't ensure anything unless you learn yourself. Kids, listen, please. Kids, hear this. It doesn't matter that you have wonderful parents. It doesn't matter that you have a great church if you don't learn yourself. Likewise, it doesn't matter how bad your background is or how heavy your baggage. Jotham came from a long line of pride, and yet he became an awesome cycle breaker. Jotham's life became a shining example of God's story unfolding. What's it going to be for you, Zed or Joe? Sad history or his story? Now, just as with the kings, my why determines my what. My, my inner machinations inevitably lead to my outer operations. The key is my heart. The key is my heart before the Lord. If I am humble and willing to learn, I'm going to see his story lived out in me. If I am proud and rebellious, my, my work will be evil in God's eyes, whatever it looks like to people. And so we come to the real point of decision. Will I humbly learn from history or will I proudly rebel? What's your answer? Let's pray. Pray with me, please. Lord, we come before you ashamed. We get so caught up in the affairs of today and the worries of tomorrow that we neglect to learn from yesterday. And this study has wounded many of our hearts. Most of us recognize much more of Zedekiah in ourselves than we really like. We, we know there's more imitation of him than you would like to see in us. Lord, bless the next few weeks as we study. Help us to understand the character and the choices that have led to various triumphs and tragedies of faith in Judah's kings. Bless us that such understanding would be applied to our character development during a time of great need in our nation. Father, help us. Help us to learn so that our lives are your story of doing right. We recognize salvation belongs only to you. We confess that truth. Like Jotham, we reject the negative legacy of Isaiah. We choose not to act like our own God, doing our own things, being just fans and not followers. In fact, even this offering that we're about to give to you pictures that. We are so grateful for your provision, and we are honored to give it before you. Amen.